Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and this is going to be part two of our single-sided deafness mini-series. I'm talking about SSD in both kids and adults, um, this episode being SSD in children. Again, joined by audiologist Dr. Dylan and neurotologist Dr. Carlson. Um, Dr. Dylan, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for joining us for this. Thank you. Thanks, John. Dr. Carlson, let's, we can start similarly as we did the adult um, episode. Could we just briefly touch on how common is this, um, just some of the common etiologies and just how to think about the patients um, with pediatric SSD? Of course. So uh, congenital unilateral sensory hearing loss occurs in up to 1 in 1,000 births in the United States. The underlying etiology is a key distinguishing feature separating the adult population from the pediatric SSD population. Whereas adults predominantly present with an idiopathic sudden centrineural hearing loss, Meniere's disease, trauma, retrochoclear pathology, or chronic ear disease as an underlying uh, cause for their SSD, uh, within the pediatric population, uh, those diagnoses are quite rare. And instead, more commonly, we'll see cochlear nerve hypoplasia, cochlear nerve aplasia, inner ear malformations or labyrinthine malformations, uh, as well as um, torches infections, and particularly uh, CMV. Yeah, CMV seems like a, a hot topic. Do you mind just zeroing in about, uh, a little bit more on, on that as it relates to pediatric single-sided deafness? Of course, I, d- I agree that uh, deserves particular attention. So CMV uh, affects approximately one in two thousand, sorry, one in two hundred births in the United States, and is the most common cause of non-hereditary hearing loss. Infants can acquire CMV either congenitally or they can have an early acquired disease. CMV is often asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic in the carrying adult, and so it often goes undetected. When we think about pediatric CMV and associated hearing loss, we generally think about two different categories, and those are the patients with symptomatic. Uh, congenital CMV and patients with asymptomatic congenital CMV. Uh, A couple notable things about this, despite being one of the more common causes of pediatric single-sided deafness and bilateral sensory hearing loss, there's no state or government um, mandated screening for CMV, which uh, uh, is interesting in my opinion or or quite remarkable. There is a lot of work being done to uh, have this more uh, widespread or mainstreamed, but Currently, it's not uh, mandated. Another interesting facet is that hearing loss associated with CMV may not manifest initially at birth, and so you may miss it on your your newborn hearing screening. Um, It may uh, fluctuate. Um, It may affect one ear or it may affect both ears. And this is challenging because in order to distinguish congenital CMV, which places you at a higher risk for sensory hearing loss from early acquired CMV, you have to obtain... Uh, testing early within the first three weeks of birth. Uh, As I said earlier, congenital CMV is the most common non-genetic cause of congenital hearing loss, and up to a quarter of all congenital hearing losses uh, can be attributed to a congenital CMV infection. Pattern of hearing loss is variable. It can be either bilateral or unilateral, and anywhere from mild uh, to profound. Uh, Symptomatic patients uh, with CMV uh, are more likely to have bilateral, approximately uh, two-thirds or up to 70% compared compared to the asymptomatic CMV group, which typically have about a 40% likelihood of uh, uh, developing hearing loss. There's a couple other unique features in terms of patient presentation in the pediatric SSD group um, that I wanted to ask you about. Number one, 
it seems much more relevant in this population than in, than in the adult population, the distinction here between prelingual, postlingual deafness and how that might affect things, and as, as well as some of the main chief um, concomitant complaints, such as coexistent t- uh, tinnitus, for example. Do you mind touching on some of those aspects? It is interesting, even though we're talking about single-sided deafness, uh, the discussion points uh, in the pediatric population and the adult population are overlapping, but off, but there are some unique or interesting uh, differences. In particular, in the pediatric population, when you're talking about unilateral hearing loss, um, it, there's this idea of the of a critical period of neuroplasticity with regard to speech and language development, and there is a benefit to to um, speech and language development uh, when having access uh, to sound binaurally. A second is uh, the higher co-prevalence of conditions that might make the SSD CI outcome poorer in this population. Specifically, uh, the pediatric population has a higher risk for having cochlear nerve aplasia, hypoplasia, as well as labyrinthine malformations and uh, cognitive uh, developmental delays. And so the question comes, you know, whether or not the benefit uh, is really there in a population where in those specific populations that might not do as well with their cochlear implant because of these uh, co uh, prevalent disorders uh, in the setting of having a normal hearing ear. Some of the ethical considerations that we'll probably talk about a little bit later in this episode as well. All right, Dr. Dillon, I know um, we more comprehensively talked about this in the SSD in adults um, episode, but just for the sake of this episode being able to stand on its own, um, would you mind overviewing some of the key features of binaural hearing that um, really? are important to think about as we as we conceptualize how patients with single-sided deafness um, uniquely struggle. Yeah, so when we think about binaural hearing, we're thinking about our ability to interpret these differences in timing and in level cues between the two ears. And we can think about this broadly in terms of head shadow effect, binaural squelch, and binaural summation. And for the head shadow effect, This is a physical phenomenon, and this is the reduction in sound intensity because the head casts a shadow over the far ear, and this attenuates high-frequency information more so than low-frequency information because of the shorter wavelengths uh, for high-frequency information as compared to the the longer wavelengths of low-frequency information. So we see that this typically affects um, sounds above 1,500 hertz. For binaural squelch, this is the benefit that we have when there are differences in where the target or the the speaker of interest and the masker or the noise source are separated in space. And having these differences in timing and level cues between where the target is located and where the masker is located, um, the combination of those um, being presented to the two ears, when we have central processing, we have an advantage, um, a central processing advantage, where we can interpret what's being said more clearly than if we're listening in a monaural condition. And then with binaural summation, this is the benefit that we get from having uh, duplicate representations of the signal. And in this scenario, the target and the mask are located in the same location. Um, And when we're listening in the monaural condition, we have a certain level of performance, but we have a boost in performance when we add the contralateral ear because we're having a duplicate representation of that signal. And transitioning now to um, workup for patients with pediatric patients um, with SSD. Could you walk through um, a little bit of the the different testing that um, 
might be obtained by the different age groups, developmental ages? Yeah, so for children, we're having to think about how can we get an accurate assessment of the hearing sensitivity in in either ear. Um, For younger children, this can be conducted either with conditioned play or with visual reinforcement audiometry. Um, We can also do this with objective measures where we are using things like auditory brainstem responses so that we can get an assessment of the hearing loss or the level the severity level of the hearing loss in each ear. Specifically for the scenario of single-sided deafness, um, how how does that work? You know, some of those, some of those environments that we traditionally test young kids um, seems like the monaural uh, listening condition would be problematic for that. So one consideration that we have when we're testing children is um, what's known as central masking. And with single-sided deafness, you're having to distract the normal hearing ear so that you can get an accurate assessment of the hearing sensitivity in the contralateral ear and the affected ear. Um, and children can get distracted by having to present that masking noise to the normal hearing ear. And so that's why if you have a child that can complete the behavioral measure, it's important to also cross-check that with an objective measure. There's a, a couple other questions as it relates to cochlear implantation um, that maybe we can save for a little bit later. But Dr. Carlson, could you um, touch on neuroimaging uh, in the workup of pediatric patients with SS? Yeah. So um, as we alluded to earlier, the finding of cochlear nerve hypoplasia or aplasia and lab- labyrinthine malformations are much higher in the pediatric population compared to the adult population. Um In contrast to the adult population where I usually just uh, uh, obtain a head MRI uh, with what we call a cochlear implant protocol, so thinly sliced um, MR sequences through the temporal bone, Uh, I'll also obtain a temporal bone CT in these patients just because of the higher uh, incidence of facial nerve anomalies and labyrinthine malformations. You could make an argument for getting an MRI first and then reflexively getting a CT scan if a malformation is seen, but... um, Practically speaking, in the pediatric population, typically your MRI is sedated, and oftentimes your CT scan is too. And so uh, I'd rather have them undergo a single sedation and get all the testing rather than putting them under an MRI and then having to get a CT later. So just for those practical purposes, I tend to get both at once. Um, When we talk about uh, imaging, uh, I think there are some sequences, some particular sequences that are valuable to talk about. It's the heavily T2-weighted parasagittal T2 sequences that are valuable to to examine for cochlear nerve hypoplasia or aplasia. The more distal your eighth nerve gets in the internal auditory canal, the more separation you have from the nerves. And right before they enter uh, the fundus of the temporal bone, you should have good separation of your cochlear nerve located anterior-inferiorly, your facial nerve located anterior-superiorly, and your superior and inferior vestibular nerves located posterior superior and posterior inferiorly. And so you should be able to see those four nerves. When you're talking about cochlear nerve hypoplasia or aplasia, um, the cochlear nerve should be larger than the facial nerve, and that's the easy way to remember it. If Even if it's the same size, you'll still call it normal. But if the cochlear nerve is smaller than the facial nerve, then you'll call it cochlear nerve hypoplasia. That's what most people's definition And if it's absent, if you don't see it, you'll call it uh, cochlear nerve aplasia. That's best determined on an MRI. You can also get indirect signs of cochlear nerve uh, hypoplasia or aplasia on a CT scan 
and they include uh, the following, uh, a narrow internal auditory canal. So uh, a normal internal auditory canal diameter is about two and a half to three millimeters. And once it starts to become very stenotic, you worry about missing some nerves. A duplicated or anomalous in, internal auditory canal uh, is also a risk factor for, or should tip you off to having the possibility of cochlear nerve hypoplasia, aplasia. Uh, and then if you look at the medialis of the, uh, of the cochlear, of the cochlea and the cochlear aperture, normally the opening to the cochlea has, there's micro perforations for the uh, small nerve endings to go through and it creates a more radiolucent area. If you have a rigid or a, a thick stock of bone across that, a bar across that opening, and you lose your cochlear uh, aperture, that's a sign that you have cochlear nerve hypoplasia or aplasia. So those are all indirect signs of, of also a missing nerve. Then you'll also look at your basic labyrinthine malformation can be detected on CT and MRI almost equally as well. Um, there's a Number of malformations you can get, uh, incomplete partition one, two, and three, two being the most common, often associated with enlarged vestibular aqueduct is the most common uh, inner ear malformation seen. How common is it to identify an anatomical cause behind the uh, hearing loss when uh, working up these patients with neuroimaging? So uh, for pediatric single-sided deafness, uh, studies will indicate that more than half of patients do not have an identifiable underlying anatomical etiology to explain their hearing loss. Um, in, on average, uh, most estimates will place an identifiable, finding an identifiable anatomical cause for the hearing loss to be between 40 and 50% of patients. When you do find an anatomical cause for SSD, the most common cause is cochlear nerve deficiency. So that would be hypoplasia or aplasia. The second most common cause is cochlear dysplasia. In Mondini malformation or IP2, incomplete partition 2, would be the most common, uh, followed by enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Last area of the workup I wanted to ask you about, um, genetic testing, lab testing. Is that something commonly being performed uh, for these patients? There's a lot of variance uh, among centers and also among providers with regard to workup for congenital SSD um, at our center, we'll still commonly obtain uh, ophthalmologic evaluation. Uh, we'll always obtain imaging, and we'll often send the patient uh, for genetic testing. Uh, the primary reason for the ophthalmologic evaluation is not just to look for, uh, you know, concomitant conditions that also manifest with vision loss um, and hearing loss, uh, but also uh, patients who have uh, hearing loss are have a heightened reliance on other sensories, other sensory input. And so having good vision is important to this population also. Uh, we do get genetic testing um, because there are, uh, the, the primary reasons or motivations for us to get genetic testing are multiple. Um, first of all, it can help us identify an under, underlying etiology in some cases. Secondly, uh, understanding an underlying condition might point us to other um, medical conditions that could be, a, if addressed earlier, might result in a better outcome. Then lastly, uh, for genetic counseling, so that later on when that person, if they decide to have uh, children, they can understand the expectation of passing on uh, the abnormality uh, or a variant onto to their children as well. Uh, but again, uh, this is variably uh, tested. We uh, discussed it earlier, but CMV testing is not mandated uh, currently. 
uh, and uh, it's also variably tested among centers. Transitioning now to talk a little bit more about treatment options, um, analogous to the adult population, obviously we can do observation. There are non-surgical options um, such as different hearing aid options or cross-aids, and then surgically implantable devices. Dr. Dillon, could you start off um, talking a little bit about some of the uh, hearing aid options, cross-aids, things um, of that nature that might benefit these patients? So um, some of the non-surgical options are your conventional hearing aids, which would be fit on the affected ear, um, and that would depend on the severity of the hearing loss um, on that ear. Um, and then you have cross-aids and bi-cross devices, and these are the contralateral routing of the signal devices, uh, where you have a microphone that's seated on the poor hearing ear, picking up the signal on that side, and then routing it over to the receiver on the normal hearing ear. And it's all going up one auditory pathway. And with bicross devices, those are fit for patients that have some hearing loss in the better hearing ear, so that there's also some amplification. But again, picking up that signal from the poor hearing ear, routing it over to the better hearing ear, and it's all going up one auditory pathway, so leaving them in a monaural listening condition. Something that we think about with children is that um, these rerouting technologies are typically um, contraindicated for young children because they could be in a scenario where um, this poor signal is being transferred over to their normal hearing ear, and it's actually disrupting the performance they would have if that signal was not being routed over. Um, so typically the recommendation is until they are mature enough to know how to manipulate that device for when they're in those particular situations, um, they should not be fit with those devices, which makes it a challenge for figuring out what's best for this patient population. What about soft bands? Are they um, helpful for these patients? It's the same idea of where you are um, picking up the signal from the poor hearing ear and sending it over to the better hearing ear. Um, so with the soft band, instead of having the technology seated on the ear, um, we have a bone conduction device that is positioned on the side of the poor hearing ear and then um, a headband that is keeping it in place um, so that you're utilizing bone conduction to route the signal over to the normal hearing ear. Um, and it's the same sort of situation if you're providing the patient with access to sound that they may not receive when it's on the side of the poor hearing ear, or at least not receive it at a intensity level that could be beneficial. Um, but they still could be in a scenario um, where the um, a poor signal is being transferred over to that normal hearing ear and taking away from the benefit they could have if they weren't having this rerouting technology. And, and last question here related to this, Dr. Dillon, it doesn't fit in perfectly, but um, are there things that these kids should be doing in their learning environments and, and things um, to help facilitate them developing normally? Yeah, so something that we recommend for children with single-sided deafness um, to help facilitate their auditory environment in the classroom is first preferential seating, so getting them closer to the teacher um, so that they can, one, see the teacher and hear them better over the other auditory noise that's happening in the environment. Um, the other thing is an FM system, so having the teacher wear a microphone and then the child has an FM speaker on their desk, so they're getting a boost in that auditory input. Um, and now that we are in the COVID pandemic, we're also thinking about the need for visual cues, so making sure that the teacher is wearing a mask that provides those visual cues um, so that the child can benefit from, one, the boost in the 
the auditory signal, but also the visual cues when listening in that space. Dr. Carlson, transitioning to surgically implantable devices, um, I won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want to just at least touch on bone-anchored hearing aids and the the different devices that fall under that umbrella. Um, would you mind just touching on that as it relates to pediatric SSD? Absolutely. So um, we uh, discussed this also in the adult uh, series on SSD, and uh, the list, the interested listener could also check it out there. But but bri- briefly for um, all uh, implantable bone conduction devices still do not restore the binaural benefit. So you're throwing sound from the deaf side uh, to the side with good hearing. Um, broadly, there's uh, several classes or groups of devices. Um, percutaneous osseointegrated screws uh, were developed in the late 70s, early 80s, and still are used by many groups um, uh, to today. The advantage is there's essentially no attenuation because the screw is coming through the skin and going directly into bone, um, and uh, it can be implanted relatively straightforward uh, through a. Uh, most people don't do a skin graft technique anymore. Some people are using a linear incision or a or a skin punch. So, pretty short procedure, low morbidity. The main risk of it is that you get skin overgrowth. Depending on the series, you might get five to twenty percent of children and adults getting skin overgrowth. There's some series that says skin overgrowth is more. Um, severe in the pediatric population secondary to just faster growing skin or more growth hormone in children. And so it can be more challenging. The next generation device uh, tried to overcome the issue of uh, the percutaneous skin irritation, and it was the Baja tract where there's a magnet uh, uh, coupled to the osseointegrated screw placed underneath the skin, and then the external device would house another magnet to couple with the internal device. It would also have the actuator, the, the microphone, um, as well as the the um, power source, that had to have a very tight connection between the magnets for to reduce skin attenuation. Because of that, there was pinching and even skin breakdown. And so, uh, a lot of groups did not really um, use the attract very uh, very much, and it was re- largely replaced by what we uh, have now: the cochlear ossea and the menel bone bridge. Both place the actuator underneath the skin, so you don't have to have that tight coupling. Uh, and there's also essentially no attenuation or minimal attenuation across skin because the the uh, actuator is connected to the uh, to the screw fixation and the skull directly. Again, these do not give you back sound localization, and they um, they do help you with speech understanding and noise in the correct in the right situation. In the wrong situation, they might um, uh, make it worse. I'll t- touch on that in just a second. Uh, the the other thing. Uh, I want to mention is that uh, FDA labeling for these devices are different according to age. And the main consideration is that the bone stock of the temporal parietal scalp, where the uh, screws are being placed, is less thick in children. And so um, uh, Baja, the osseointegrated screw, is not approved for children until the age of five. And current devices like the Ossea are not FDA labeled for children until, uh, until the age of 12. Uh, off-label implantation is still pretty common. Um, in my practice, I'll uh, place uh, uh, these devices in children down to five years of age, um, like the Ossea, uh, in children who have oral atresia, for example, or other indications for placement. Dr. Dillon, one of the things that we've that's come up a couple times here now is um, this idea that sometimes some of these devices can actually um, hurt uh, patients listening and noise in certain listening environments, um, which is kind of counterintuitive, maybe. Could you flesh that idea out a little bit more? 
Yeah. So if we think about um, the benefit of bone conduction devices for sound source localization, um, what we typically see is that performance is either at chance or it's sometimes worse than what they have when they're not wearing the bone conduction device. Um, for speech recognition and noise, the benefit of the bone conduction device is really in a specific situation where the target of interest is 90 degrees towards your poor hearing ear, so where you have that bone conduction conduction device, and it's picking up the signal and sending it over to your normal hearing ear. Um, and in that situation, you could have noise over on your normal hearing ear, but you're having that benefit because the bone conduction device is routing that signal from the poor hearing ear over to the normal hearing ear and providing you with that listening information. Um, however, it's specific to that situation. We see variable performance when the target is in front of the listener and the noise is on the side of the normal hearing ear, um, or if the target is on the side of the normal hearing ear and the noise is on the poor hearing ear, and now you're routing that over to the normal hearing ear, then we can see um, a, a reduction in performance. And keeping that in mind is wildly important when we're thinking about children um, because they're not always able to navigate which situation they're in. And if they're in a classroom environment and that scenario is constantly changing where the teacher may be moving around the room. Um, and so in some scenarios, it's beneficial for me to have her on one side versus the other side. Um, that might be hard for them to figure out when they should be utilizing that technology versus not and ultimately having a lack of benefit from it. Now I want to talk about the kind of the meat of the treatment discussion here, cochlear implantation. Um, Dr. Dillon, could you start us off by just going over the candidacy criteria um, for pediatric patients with SSD? Yeah, so in, in 2019, the um, indications were approved by the FDA for children as young as five years and older who have single-sided deafness or asymmetric hearing loss. Um, for both of those indications, they needed to have profound loss in the affected ear. And then for single-sided deafness, it's normal to mild levels of hearing loss in the better hearing ear. And then for asymmetric hearing loss, it's mild to moderately severe in the contralateral ear. Um, and then poor speech recognition in the ear to be implanted. Um, I think we would all agree that five years is fairly conservative um, and that there is likely a need or is a need for a younger age um, to the indications to change for younger ages. But I think we'll get into that in just a little bit. Yeah, I, that's one of the primary questions I had is at um, your institution, Dr. Dillon, or your institution, Dr. Carlson, um, is that something people are adhering to pretty strongly or um, are we treating this more like uh, a traditional candidate, pediatric candidate, whereas FDA nine months or a lot of people doing, you know, six months? Um, I think that looking at their clinical picture helps a little bit. So there are, there are some people that you'll feel pretty strongly or more strongly about doing earlier. Those are the people with more time sensitive conditions, um, specifically somebody with meningitis and unilateral hearing loss or asymmetrical hearing loss, you might, you're might you much more likely to push it because you're worried about ossification or fibrosis. Uh, patients who are at high risk for developing a contralateral one, uh, contralateral hearing loss, uh, again, from underlying etiology like the CMV population. Those are a couple groups where um, I think a lot of people are more interested in implanting earlier than five years of age. Um, 
in general, a lot of, at least in my practice, a lot of it is based on parent motivation, to be frank. If I have a a child who's presenting at one year of age or even a little bit earlier sometimes, um, and the parents are very well informed and there's very strong evidence that the patient has profound unilateral hearing loss and their anatomy is otherwise normal, and uh, they're uh, low, very you know, favorable surgical candidate and they're uh, pushed for it, um, I, I will you know, proceed with uh, submitting prior written authorization and proceeding with implantation in a lot of those cases. Um, so I think it's very patient, uh, patient family uh, specific. You have to look at the whole clinical picture, but um, I, I agree. Uh, you know, these are these age cutoffs, insurance companies have to create them, but they're artificial, like biological and chronological ages are different and life is on a continuum. It's not on cutoffs, but um, I understand that that's that's basically how insurance companies have to operate. But as clinicians, we look at you know the whole picture, and we do we try to do what's right for each individual patient based on their specific needs. Dr. Dillon, related to this idea of implanting kids earlier, obviously um, a challenging or it can be challenging in traditional candidacy criteria. You know, when the kids are are quite young, um, at what age do we start be um, can we start being confident in the accuracy or the um, conclusion that someone is deaf on on one side. How, about how early are we thinking of that? Well, I think we can get that information from um, the auditory brainstem response findings. Um, our group likes to cross-check what we see with the ABR with behavioral testing before proceeding with cochlear implantation. Um, so that's pretty early. You're talking nine to 12 months of age before you can feel confident with um, what you're getting with the diagnostic audiology. So something else that we think about other than detection of sounds is also the recognition. And that is a little bit more complicated to measure in children than it is with adults. Um, With adults, we can put them in the sound booth and we can present masking to the normal hearing ear and assess their speech recognition in the affected ear. But for children, that can be very distracting. And so um, it's challenging to determine whether the Um, performance score that you are getting on those measures is accurate. Um, So one thing that we can do um, to see what their speech recognition is, is first what we call the plug and muff method. And so we use an insert foam plug, put that into the normal hearing ear, and then position a TDH phone over top. Um, And you can first look to see what is their detection of sounds in the sound field with that to see how much attenuation you are getting from that. And then you can present your speech recognition materials in the sound field to measure their performance in the affected ear. Um, There still could be some bleed over with that. So there's some limitations there. Um, Another alternative is to do a direct audio input test to the affected ear um, so that you really are eliminating any input from the normal hearing ear. Um, And we do this a lot postoperatively with the cochlear implant where we're presenting the monosyllabic word material via direct connect to the cochlear implant so that we know that the speech recognition score that we're getting is truly from the implanted ear and the normal hearing ear is not helping. Dr. Carlson, when we think about um, duration of deafness in these kids and some of them being prelingual versus postlingual deafness, um, how do you put all that together when thinking about uh, projected outcomes for these patients? I think if we try to answer that question based on our data from the bilateral profound hearing loss children, we're going to make a lot of incorrect assumptions 
they're a very different population. Like even just beginning with the fact that somebody who's prelingual with SSD will become postlingual just from with their normal hearing ear, and they'll develop pretty good speech and language in most cases from that. So it's just just they're fundamentally different groups. Um, the second thing is there is redundancy, cortical redundancy uh, from one ear um, to to um, the cortical region. So uh, it's very likely that you are getting some sort of stimulation, a bilateral cortical stimulation from unilateral hearing. And so it might be that one good ear keeps the brain primed bilaterally to some degree. There is data that says you know, territory is lost with SSD, the idea of neuroplasticity, that if an area of the brain is not being used, it's overtaken by other function. So there is data that shows that that is true, but there's also data to demonstrate the redundancy, cortical redundancy of hearing. And so there's probably at least some level of priming that still exists. The other thing is after you've undergone implantation, uh, just even if you had a longer duration of deafness, there's something unique about this population from the standpoint of them, when they have a normal ear, um, that's kind of this, I call it like an internal coach. They can always, they can take what they're hearing in their good ear and reconcile with what they're hearing in their cochlear implant ear. And in my opinion, that might, um, accelerate or provide some advantages with regard to rehabilitation in this population as well. So you can think about all these theoretical, uh, discussion points, but then actually how, what do we actually see in the data? Well, there's not a ton, uh, there's not a lot of data that looks at patients who are congenital SSD with late uh, implantation, but there are some papers that give some data. If you take a person who's bilateral, congenitally profoundly deaf, and you implant them at uh, you know two years of age, that's much better than five years of age. And if you implant somebody at six months of age, most data says that's a lot better than two years of age as well. So implanting earlier in that patient group demonstrates significant benefits, but the but probably that you know that slope is is less strong in the SSD population. Um, there are several papers that looked at uh, the, again these are small numbers, but a, a, a small series of children who were congenitally deaf that were implanted past the age of eight or nine, and there were several patients that achieved pretty good speech perception, um, and there were a couple non-users in that group as well. But uh, just to say, there's not enough data to make a definitive conclusion in a, in taking all of the data from the bilateral profound population and extrapolating to this group is an error, I think, or at least uh, probably isn't a good thing to do until we get more information. When we think about cochlear anomalies, um, you know, we talked earlier, you said uh, cochlear hypoplasia, cochlear nerve hypoplasia, or aplasia being the most common anomaly that's found on neuroimaging, and then other things like um, IP2, most common labyrinthine malformation. Um, how, how do we think about projected outcomes for patients with these kind of anatomical findings? So we already know that the SSD population does have a higher risk of non-use compared to the bilateral profound population, um, simply because they have one good ear. And a lot of people can do pretty well with one good ear, depending on a number of factors. But we also know that conditions such as severe labyrinthine malformation, cochlear nerve hypoplasia, uh, significantly impact your outcome. So if you're taking a patient who's already at a heightened risk for non-use, uh, and then you add the possibility that their outcome's not going to be as good as what it would be if they didn't have that condition, uh, it's it might be a little bit more difficult to sell. You know, in many ways, there's a lot of ways to think about SSD and cochlear implantation. From one side, you can say there's, well, what have you got to lose? 
you're deaf in one ear, and the chance that you're going to have a complication from that is almost zero. I mean, there are risks with implantation, but at, high, at centers that are doing them a lot, even with the mal- malformed inner ear, the number of people that get infection, meningitis, any sort of complication is really, really low. So if, if you look at it from that perspective, you could say, why not? Why don't we push the, the boundary of this and find out where the point of diminishing return is? Where can we define that? But when faced with the situation of to implant or not into not to implant, I usually <laughs> err towards implanting, to be uh, honest. Um, but this is a group, if you have a person with severe developmental delay and cochlear nerve hypoplasia and SSD, is it really in the best interest to implant that patient? And maybe it isn't. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anybody uh, has an answer for this population specifically. Um, it's, it's an interesting area that could be, you know, discussed and debated for quite a long time. We just, we need more data is probably the best way to answer it. Dr. Dillon, is there, um, if you're counseling parents on expected outcomes, if they, if they have normal anatomy, um, uh, otherwise a, a very favorable candidate, um, what would be like a rule of thumb you'd counsel patient parents on of saying this is kind of what the benefit you can expect if the patient ends up, you know, liking the device and not, not being a non-user, but I guess, I guess actually related to that too, how many end up, what's the chance that they would end up being a non-user? Yeah. So we um, set the bar pretty low still. I think we're, we're still being very conservative when we're counseling patients, um, both children and adults. Um, And so we'll tell parents, you know, it may be the child does not benefit. However, the data that we have currently is showing that the majority of children do benefit, uh, particularly for localization and then for speech recognition and noise and then some of these um, subjective measures like patient fatigue and listening effort and things like that. Um, So we, we do have pretty candid discussions about um, if they're not wearing it, they won't benefit from it, um, especially if we don't know the status of the auditory nerve, you know, think, things like that of um, will it be able to provide an effective signal when combined with um, the normal hearing ear. So we're, we're still being pretty conservative with that. Um, and I, I think that's an important step because it shows the parents um, that they do need to um, work with their child and oral rehabilitation is important, um, consistent use is important so that they can have a more favorable outcome. Um, our non-use rate is low. I can only think of one child um, of the multiple children that we have been um, implanting over the past couple of years who has become a non-user, and that is an older child. And so we start to get into the age of where, um, you know, children realize it makes them different, and so they might not be as receptive to wear it at school and things like that. Um, But for the most part, I think counseling and realistic expectations is still wildly important um, for this patient population. Are there any unique uh, auditory rehabilitation considerations for this subgroup? So we're um, still determining what the best type of oral oral rehabilitation is for these children. Um, direct audio input is um, what's important. So isolating the input to the cochlear implant um, so that the normal hearing ear is not helping um, is what our speech language pathology team is doing primarily. Um, and that, that's been very beneficial to train that ear by itself. 
but these children are exceeding expectations pretty early on. And so um, transitioning to um, measures where you're listening with both the cochlear implant and the normal hearing ear together to see if you can improve some of those binaural hearing tasks is where we're starting to think now. Stepping back a little bit from some of the um, audiometric outcomes and some of the more technical technical aspects, asking um, or looking at the question of just ethical considerations in these children, sometimes it's argued that you should wait. We should wait um, for the child to make their own decision about this um, getting an implant in their ear. Yeah, so I I don't know how popular this thought is, but um, I I think it's. Um, a very worthwhile thing to say, I, I'd like for this to be my child's decision um, when they're old enough. Um, but unfortunately, by the time they are old enough, um, the benefit they could have received from the cochlear implant, that window of time has passed. Um, and I think, you know, when we're, when we're considering auditory deprivation and um, the development of binaural hearing, making sure that we are implanting, particularly for these congenital congenitally deaf children um, within an age range where they could develop these binaural hearing abilities um, is particularly important. And of course, you know, we're thinking now about two years of age and younger, which makes that challenging to have the child to be a a part of that process. Um, So my thought is if we're realizing and the data is indicating that you can develop these binaural hearing abilities if you are implanting earlier, um, then having very candid discussions with the family about what that might mean um, is an important part of the process. Dr. Dillon, if you are talking to a a patient um, or counseling parents on just the longevity of this device, um, what would you tell them of the likelihood or timeline of needing the internal device replaced? So we tell families um, that the internal devices are, the warranty is for 10 years, but that doesn't mean it's going to fail in 10 years. And these devices are getting better and better. And so it may be 20, 30 years before the device needs to be replaced. Um, But it's very likely that a revision surgery is in the cards maybe twice, three times in that child's lifetime. Um, And so that's something that we talk about, upgrades to the internal technology and the external technology as well. Yeah, there, uh, there's a couple scenarios you could think about reimplantation. The first is, de- uh, you know, a hard device failure. That's the obvious one where the device no longer provides the benefit it's supposed to provide. Um, the internal devices are back compatible with the processors to a certain point. So if a person was implanted now, maybe in 30 years, the external processor will no longer be back compatible. And so when they get an upgrader, if they can't get that other processor again, they might need to get a new one. And then there could be breakthrough technologies, some big change in the technology that's so big that might drive the patient to want to go under implantation or reimplantation, even if they're doing pretty well. So, you know, one technology or one innovation that's not going to happen tomorrow, but I don't think is super far away is a totally implantable device. So that might be an example of a, of a situation where they might undergo implantation for the benefit of having the device when they're sleeping, swimming, and not and um, never turning off and not externally visible, for example. So a couple different scenarios where you might consider reimplantation, not just for device failure. All right. Well, Dr. Dillon, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for um, taking time for both of these episodes of the Adults and, ch- and Children. Um, and I uh, hope to have you hope to have you back again sometime in the future. Thank you. Thanks, John. All right, I'll now move on to the summary portion of the podcast. Um, so, 
touched on a number of key distinguishing features as we think about SSD in children and as compared to adults. And first and foremost, just being the etiology of hearing loss, whereas in adults, it's predominantly idiopathic sunsense neural hearing loss. In kids, we're talking about a number of different things like um, inner ear malformations, uh, like a Mondaini malformation, or things like cochlear nerve hypoplasia, congenital or perinatal infections, um, uh, an array of different etiologies that are very distinct from the adult population that very much so contrast the SSD population in kids compared to adults. Um, of course, the benefits of binaural hearing similar between the two, um, but a number of different treatment considerations to think about in the pediatric um, population. One, one of the uh, ones we spent the predominance of the time talking about, and the important one to really recognize is that in 2019, the FDA expanded the cochlear implantation labeling for pediatric SSD now to include kids five and older uh, with single-sided deafness who have profound uh, loss in the ear to be implanted and then normal um, or mild sensorineural loss in the other ear. Um, they, can all, they can also, same as adults, have asymmetric loss in the other ear where they've got profound loss in the ear to be implanted and then um, uh, mild to moderately severe sensorineural loss in the um, better hearing ear with at least a 15 dB gap um, between the two. And then, of course, in the ear to be implanted, they have to have very poor um, speech perception, less than 5% um, based on labeling criteria. It's also, though, important to understand similar to the traditional candidacy criteria for CIs in children. Um, there is a role of off-label uh, indications for cochlear implantation and SSD in kids. And uh, certainly there is not a precedent to have to wait to five years old if, um, if everything else is pointing to them being um, benefiting from a cochlear implant. And lastly, um, important thing to just think about is what features prognosticate um, children from having for having a poor outcome in, in single-sided deafness because it is a bit unique in this population. Things like cochlear nerve um, hypoplasia is something that's pr probably a poor prognosticator. Severe malformations, um, so not including IP2 or Mondini malformation, but uh, like a common cavity malformation, for example. And then another one to just think about is patients that have significant um, coexistent developmental delay where um, you're concerned that even if the, the cochlea and the cochlear nerve are intact, there's a central processing disorder that might uh, undermine the success of, of, the, of the patient long-term. I'll wrap things up with a, just a couple sh quick questions. Um, I'll, just as a reminder, I'll ask the question, pause for a couple seconds, allow you to think about the, the correct answer, and then give the answer. So first question of the day, name some of the primary differences in the etiology of hearing loss in pediatric uh, single-sided deafness compared to adults. So in contrast to adults, where the primary etiologies consist of idiopathic, sun-sensorineural hearing loss, retrocochlear pathology, Meniere's um, trauma, etc. In kids, it's more commonly due to things like cochlear nerve um, hypoplasia, um, and uh, congenital infections like CMV, malformations of um, the, the labyrinth like a Mondini malformation or um, EVA, enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Um, and these features just fundamentally change the patient presentation, but then also impact um, how we think about treatment. Second question, how would you identify cochlear nerve aplasia or hypoplasia during the workup of a child with SSD?
So correct answer here is we talked about heavily T2-weighted um, sagittal, er, heavily T2-weighted MRI sequences in the sagittal imaging plane are the best um, uh, imaging modality um, to answer this question. And um, the way you, you find this is you go to the fundus of the IAC and you um, look for the presence of the cochlear nerve, um, which is located inferior to the facial nerve in the fundus. should be approximately the same size. If it's smaller than the facial nerve, we consider that to be hypoplastic. Other things you can look at, as Dr. Carlson mentioned, were anomalies associated with the internal auditory canal or inter internal auditory canal stenosis. Third question, in a patient with incomplete partition type 2, how would their CI, CI outcomes be expected to differ long term? Bit of a trick question here, um, but in a Mondini malformation or incomplete partition type 2, these uh, children actually are expected to do very well, um, as well as their um, counterparts that do not have the same labyrinthine malformation. And last question here, how long would you expect the internal device to last before needing a replacement on, based on current cochlear implant technology? Um, answer here, there's a couple, a couple different factors to consider. Um, as Dr. Dillon mentioned, warranty um, is 10 years. It's likely that as, if a kid's implanted, they're likely to uh, need uh, maybe two to three re-implantations of their internal device. Obviously, there's um, other factors to think about, as Dr. Carlson got into, about major advances in technology or the external device no longer being compatible with the internal device that the patient has um, that might influence um, maybe quicker uh, re-implantation than um, just pure internal device failure. But it boils down largely based on current um, technology, you might expect a kid to have to get a, a re-implantation of their internal device or exchange of their internal device two to three times in their lifetime. All right, that'll wrap things up for this mini-series on single-sided deafness. Um, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.